empty in the sweatshop. You don't feel like I'm dying, but I won't stop. I don't mind, cause I'm that kind of guy. I pump it on till the end of time. Welcome to the Lone Star Collective Podcast, episode number two. I'm your host, Jesse Williams, joined by co-host and executive director of Texas Cannabis Collective, Austin Sam Hariri. How are you doing this evening, Evening, Austin? Great. What's up, Texas? Awesome. Tonight, we're going to be joined by our guest, Susan Hayes. She is one of the awesome attorneys that has been working on the smokable hemp ban case here in the state of Texas. Susan is already with us. How are you doing this evening, Susan? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Well, we appreciate you coming. I imagine this last couple days has been kind of a a roller coaster, hasn't it? Uh, it has. It's good to win a lawsuit. <laughs> oh, a permanent injunction is always way a good to thing. Start a Monday. Yeah. Whoa, yeah. What a mo- yeah. That's 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 awesome for a Monday. Monday's usually horrible. It certainly perked mine up. Well, that's good to hear. Letter ruling. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful and. Um, you know, from our purview, the the energy is really strong now. Um, there's a lot of, you know, after the reporting, you know, came out yesterday, um, early afternoon, it uh, it really, you know, people, the, the energy was really high. A, a lot of uh, people across the industry were being vocal about it. So um, I can imagine somebody who was... It, you know, deep inside, this is very gratifying. It is, but I got to tell you, lawyers being what we are, the, there's 10 minutes of jubilant celebration, then our brains immediately click into what's next mode. <laughs> like, what do we need to prepare for? What defenses do we need to be ready for? What do we think the state's going to do? Because, and to kind of explain where we are, we've won in the trial court. What the judge issued on Monday was a letter ruling. And then she asked us in that ruling to draft and submit a formal order for her to sign. And that process usually takes a couple of weeks. And then once that formal order is signed, we expect the state will appeal it. And then off we go to the appellate courts, which will take months and months and months and months for that process. Yeah, I imagine I always thought in my mind, it's like you're jumping out of an airplane and the scariest part is jumping out. But once you've jumped out, you're for like 10 seconds. You're like, yeah, this is great. I did it. And then the rest is realizing, oh, man, the, the ground's coming pretty quick. Right. Better pull that ripcord. Um, well, and it's even crazier in cases where temporary injunctions sought because you end up having two tracks going. So we had an appeal of the temporary injunction up at the Austin Court of Appeals. At the same time, we were waiting on the permanent injunction ruling. And eventually those tracks theoretically merge. And that's what happened with her letter ruling. And I thought that was kind um, of a kind of weird. And I guess one of the first questions I wanted to start asking about was I wanted to be able to quickly establish a timeline of the events that have taken place with this case. I understand that it was filed shortly after the DSHS rules came out. They came out with their hemp regulations. So what mm-hmm. was the series of events that followed from those regulations putting out? Yeah, let me I'll walk you through it. The, as you said, the lawsuit was filed shortly after those regs came out. And then we had to get a setting for a temporary a, a temporary restraining order hearing. And there's three steps to getting an injunction. A temporary restraining order, which is the super fast thing you try to get at the beginning. Those are only good for 14 days, although you can agree to extend them for another 14 days. 
And the main question a judge is asking there is what's the status quo? The goal is to maintain things where they are while the courts work it out. And we were able to win that argument pretty easily because people have been selling smokable hemp products for, at that point, over a year and a half for those who got in as soon as the farm bill hit. So it was easy to argue that and prove that. And then the temporary injunction hearing, which was in September of last year, is longer, more evidence is put on, more formal. And the court then ruled in our favor. And that's what enabled everybody to keep manufacturing, processing, distributing, and selling smokable hemp products. And those rulings can be appealed. So that's where we have the two tracks pop up. The state appealed that temporary injunction ruling. Meanwhile, we go forward toward our final trial on permanent injunction, which was held in March. And by March, all the briefs have been filed in the temporary injunction here appeal. The oral argument happened in the temporary injunction hearing this spring. And that ruling came out, uh, what was it, like the week, two weeks ago, roughly? Yes. And we lost a yeah. tiny technical piece of that. And the, the Court of Appeals basically said you didn't say the magic words to do your constitutional, to tie your constitutional challenge to the rule. And one thing that was helped us, I think, ultimately in litigation, but has always kind of cracked me up because it was so bizarre, was the way this so-called ban was written in the statute. It didn't say thou shalt not possess or smoke hemp. Instead, it said in the statute that neither the Department of Agriculture or the Department of State Health Services, which it really calls DISHES after its acronym, could make rules to let people have a license to manufacture or process hemp for smoking. And then they define smoking as including vaping. Um, and that's just a strange way to do it. I mean, when the first time I, I remember very distinctly during the legislative session when I was lobbying on HB 1325, when I first saw that language <laughs> and was informed that the bill can't pass without it, um, I kind of <laughs> cracked up to myself because I thought, oh, this is really weird and going to be easier to challenge in court. Bring it, you know. And that's so, exactly what happened. To, to speak to that, I remember at that time, because we were, I was also there at the Capitol covering a lot of uh, things that were happening across the space. Uh, and we obviously, you know, 1325 was, you know, in its original draft was was very well written. And um, a lot of advocates expected it to pretty much sail right through, which it, it, eventually it did. But I think what I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, it came down as a committee substitute in the House, correct? And that was kind of the explanation upon inquiry was that this bill was not going to pass unless it had some kind of exception to uh, cons- like smokable or ignitable products. It uh, sort of, and it, it was. The Senate was where the changes made. And early on in the session, the House version of the bill was a pretty skinny version and a real basic version to just comply with the, the Farm Bureau. Right. The Senate version was a lot beefier and some safeguard. Like, you know, we have really low hemp license fees in Texas. It's a hundred bucks for a license and a hundred bucks for every location where you're going to have hemp. And they're very simple to get. 
And that was by design by Senator Perry built into the Senate version because he wanted it to be easy on farmers and this not be this big, complicated thing. You don't really need to hire a lobbyist or a lawyer to get a hemp license in Texas. You just all you need is no controlled substances, um, felonies for the previous 10 years. What is it? And that's it. What is it like Florida? Florida has ridiculous prices, from my understanding, like you had to be vertically operated as well. That you may be thinking of the medical cannabis program there, but a state early adopter states, 2014 farm bill states tended to have pretty complicated hemp laws and licensing processes because people were still, I mean, think that's like, you know, I'm going to screw up the, the dog ears metaphor. At that point, folks were still so freaked out about cannabis. And right. hemp licenses were a big thing because they were and they had to be part of a research program. Um, and Texas came on after 2018. So Senator Perry wanted to keep it simple. And for the farmer's point of view, you know, he represents Lubbock. And one thing right. I've learned in all this is I don't think we'd have hemp laws like we have them if the price of tobacco and cotton hadn't been down because Mitch McConnell wanted people in Kentucky to be able to grow something else. And same with cotton in Texas. Right. Um, so it should be simple. It shouldn't be a big whoop to get a hemp license. Um, so for the, the offending language came in very late in the process. It was hard to get the hemp bill a hearing in the Senate, which was a little weird since it was being carried by a chairman. But right. the lieutenant governor didn't refer it to the Ag Committee, which is bizarre, I mean, or Lovely. to the water issues. Instead, he initially referred it, the Senate version, to business and, and commerce. And that chairman wouldn't give it a hearing. So the Senate had to wait. Senator Perry had to wait for the House bill to come over. And by then had persuaded behind the scenes the lieutenant governor's office to refer it to the Ag Committee. And right. if any of y'all were around that Senate committee hearing, it was super fast. Yes. And, you know, I we discouraged people from signing up and testifying because we wanted to get that bill out of there as fast as we could because we were kind of running out of time at that point. That it always seems to be kind of the general in my experience this last session is that when bills get to the Senate, um, you, you really just it's about getting them across the finish line. And yeah. Anybody who is uh, who's been in Texas politics, at least for the last, you know, six to eight years and uh, has any understanding of the dynamic between the lieutenant governor who oversees the Senate uh, in the relationship with the with the House and also with the governor. So uh, it can be it can be very dicey once it, things dicey get to the is Senate. A good word. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dicey. And, and it's. Back in the day, once upon a time and not that long ago, the leadership of both houses, the old expression was let the members vote their district. And you you didn't get punished for voting your district. And there was more respect for the individual members of the legislature to do what they came there to do. That was represent their constituents. This, this, and I'm sort of thinking fondly of Bill Hobby when he was lieutenant governor. He, who's the Hobby Airport's named after his family. His father was lieutenant governor. His mother was parliamentarian of the house and very much respected the process of governing um this lieutenant governor rules with an iron fist and he's turned what used to be a very rote step in the process the first reading of a bill and referral to committee into a place for him to kill bills sometimes he just won't refer a bill and that happened to the medical cannabis bill for two and a half weeks this last session and yeah. it took a lot 
of pressure and cajoling and begging to get the lieutenant governor to refer the bill to a committee. We had to literally be at the Capitol, as we said, drag that bill across the line. Yes. Just and you know, there were no witnesses on that bill because mm-hmm. there was no time. Well, there was um, that was something I believe it was, that a, it was like a Saturday night. They agreed to do it on like a Sunday morning. They went in yeah, and said, oh, yeah, yeah like, ru- basically they rubber stamped it and said, get it to the floor. Yeah. And, you know, the the bad thing when things happen fast and I, I'm watching the election litigation legislation, too, and it's about to play out there. When you go fast, sometimes the language doesn't do exactly what you thought it was going to do. Yeah, and that's con- true of the smokable hemp language. It got shoved in at the last minute. Mm-hmm. And the people who did the shoving didn't understand hemp and didn't understand the hemp industry. I'm mm-hmm. not sure they really understood plants. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, seriously, and it's, you know, in fact, I think the thing that the sentence that came out of my mouth when I saw it, you know, this, you may not manufacture hemp for smoking was, don't they know you can smoke it as it grows out of the ground? Like, there's really no manufacturer to it. Um, although technically, as a legal matter, I was wrong because the definition of manufacturer in the bill is super broad and includes packaging. So, Rolling, cleaning hemp, drying it, putting it into pre-rolls is technically manufacturing hemp for smoking. It seems like putting it in a jar would, would do the same thing. Hence, people were like, oh, this is this is not for smoking. This is – it's hemp tea. It's tea. Um, yeah, that's one thing that's really absurd about all of this, that a state agency would publish in their – rulemaking, you know, just call it tea. We're going to ban something, but nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you can do it anyway. And that may sound great on the surface. The problem is, and we, this was one of the side arguments in the court case, it makes the business owners vulnerable because the government can change its mind anytime and start, you know, enforcing that. Um, uh, we, and that's we, not good for business and not good for farmers. Yeah, you can't have a regulation for a business where the regulation changes with with which way the flag blows in the wind, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of it's not a regulation; it's a, an administrative whim at that point. Because um, with regulations, there has to be a process, and and that that was sort of the second claim in the case that they added distribution and retail sale when that was not in the bill. You can't do that in rulemaking. All right, well. We're going to head into a sponsor break here for just a moment. You're listening to the Lone Star Collective Podcast, Episode 2. I'm your host, Jesse Williams, the co-host, Austin Zamharari. We're joined by Susan Hayes this episode, talking about our smokable hemp ban. We'll be back after this short break. My mama told me, son, always be a good boy. Don't ever play with guns, but I shot him. Just to watch him die When I hear that whistle blowing I hang my head and cry Blue Dream Blue Bonnet is a proud sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective. Blue Dream Blue Bonnet carries cannabis art, gifts, accessories, and more for you and your friends. Whether it be a pair of cannabis-themed leggings or a rolling tray, Blue Dream carries a variety of products. Visit BlueDreamBB.com to see their inventory and check back regularly as new items are updated. You can also find them online with Facebook and Instagram under the handle at Blue Dream Blue Bonnet. You can visit them online again at BlueDreamBB.com. You know it would be cool if your business was mentioned on a podcast several times an episode. Well, you could have a slot right here on the Lone Star Collective just like the one I'm doing right now. 
Show your community that your business supports changes to social welfare regarding cannabis in Texas. Inform our audience that you are a supporter of independent journalism and the activism work we put in while informing them about your business. Let your customers know where you are located and what you offer the community. For more information on getting your business mentioned on Lone Star Collective, visit TexasCanaco.com. That's TXCanaco.com and click the contact tab. Oak Cliff Cultivators is a sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective and Lone Star Collective Podcast. Oak Cliff focuses on quality assurance with their hemp products while providing customer service to help you discover cannabinoids to meet your needs. Their product line includes hemp flower pre-rolls, CBG tinctures, edibles, Delta 8, and merch. For more information on their product's quality or to shop online today, visit oakcliffcultivators.com or contact them at info at oakcliffcultivators.com. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast, distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, and much more, to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams and Austin Sam Hariri. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast, episode number two. I'm your host, Jesse Williams, co-host Austin Zamhariri. Our guest today is Susan Hayes. She was one of the attorneys working on the Smokable Hemp Ban case. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you here. It's been it's been quite an interesting discussion about this. There's been it's just it's 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 just it's so contradictory to itself when I listen to the live cast about what's like taking place. Like I watched the, you were sending me links for the live streams when these cases were coming up and some of the stuff, yeah. it was just, it was just the most mind numbing things to hear the state say. <laughs> Cause it, it, I think one of the arguments was basically if we wanted to ban aspirin, if the legislature wanted to do that, the state of Texas could do that. A philosophy going around certain conservative circles about executive power. And this is sort of weird to people who've been around long enough to remember when local control was, you know, a, a mantra coming from the conservative side of things. And now it's, oh, no, executive power, that the states are where it's at, that the feds shouldn't have any power, local government should be having a power, and then that the executive governor is all powerful. And that's some of that. And that really, the attorney general's office is really aggressive about that idea. Um, but the other huge piece of it is they knew nothing about cannabis and nothing about hemp and just would say the strangest things in court, which we didn't call attention to because it's, you know, one, one thing you learn about lawyering is if your other side's trying to hang themselves, give them rope and stand back yeah, and let, watch. Let, let them do it. I, I've seen that with groups, like even online, it's like people want to make fools of themselves. Let them do it. Don't, don't get entangled in their foolishness. Yeah. I think there was one point where they likened us to cocaine dealers. And I was just like, what? <laughs> Yeah. There's so many layers of that makes no sense. Would you so say the state, the, the state was really operating in in working from a from a really old school mentality when it came to cannabis? Oh yeah, oh yeah, and 
you know, I, um, it's funny, the lawyer on the other side, I had across from me and a bunch of other lawsuits I was working on unrelated to cannabis in 2020. So I've gotten to know him fairly well. Um, but I mean, just, I have to remind myself like this guy's like an old school square. Um, and literally have had side conversations with him where I had to explain that his statement that everybody quote, everybody knows pot is bad, um, was not accurate. And let me introduce you to the national Institute of health database, PubMed, you know, feel free to go on there and do some searches. You can see what the science says about cannabis. Um, and also not understanding the hemp marijuana distinction. And of course, it is an arbitrary distinction and a legal distinction and one where the, the THC line in the sand is drawn at the wrong place, mm-hmm. but still just not getting it, that this is a genetic difference in the plants um, and that people who like having CBD and find CBD medically useful to them aren't bad people. And there is some of that attitude coming out of that office. Yeah, it was just, I think some of the stuff they were like, they just kept saying the same things over and over and over. Like if we keep saying this, it will become true the third, fourth, fifth time we say it. And I think at one point, yeah. even Judge Livingston was like, I, I just heard you say that. I don't need to hear you say it again. Yes. I think the judge expressed some frustration, although I was very impressed with her ability. And this is what happens when you're a judge for decades, because she has been on the bench for a long time um, and actually is retiring. She's an out. She's not running again next year. So her she'll end her tenure as a judge in December of 2022. And, you know, she a good judge has a good poker face. So she does not let on her irritation until it gets really bad. And there were some points in the case where she did that. Oh, yeah. I mean, there obviously has to be a line where it's like, you know, we need to get this over. We need to be done with this. You saying the same thing like a broken record is not going to change the outcome now. Yeah. And, you know, another, I'm um, giving y'all lawyering tips on this podcast that is respect the judge's time. And when you're repeating yourself, you're not respecting the judge's time. And another dynamic that was going on behind the scenes, and I'm sure a lot of people were anxious that this took so long, but it took so long because of the pandemic. The courts were so backed up because they went from doing things in person where they could really churn through cases to everything by Zoom. Um, And, you know, we had that trial back in March and the ruling didn't come out to here in August. And that's a long time to get a final ruling after trial. But Judge, it was Judge Laura Livingston from Austin, just had a tremendous amount on her plate. She's the, it was called the administrative judge or the presiding judge for Travis County, which means she has a whole lot of administrative headaches she has to deal with on top of judging. Um, so it, it took a while. And it, this also, and this is now I'm going to go legal nerd on y'all again, the theory of this case is a pretty cutting edge one. And that uh, has to do with economic liberty. And it's based on a case called Patel that's about eyebrow threading. Yes, and yes I remember. I think, are, I, think I, I, I sent something to you about it when the f- case first started. I was like, this seems to harken back to the Patel I. I Eyebrow threading gears. Yeah, and that's exactly what we modeled it on. And I say we loosely. I got to give some love to Matt Zorn at Yetter Coleman, who did the analysis and framing of the case and was lead trial counsel. Um, You know, for those of y'all who aren't familiar with eyebrow threading, it's a West Asian practice where people with very nimble thumbs and wrists roll, literally roll a piece of thread 
across areas of the body where people don't want hair. And it's a way to shape eyebrows. There are no chemicals involved. It's a, you know, a physical skill. And the state of Texas made people who had eyebrow threading salons go get a cosmetology license, which costs a bunch of money. It's hundreds of hours of school time. That's all about dying hair and chemicals and things that are far more complicated and that raise public health and safety issues that eyebrow threading does not. And so the lawsuit was arguing as a matter of substantive due process, the government can't make me get a license, pay fees, do all this rigmarole when it really has nothing to do with how I'm trying to make a living. Similar idea here, the state of Texas was telling us, you can't manufacture a process, do this thing to make a living, hemp for smoking, just because we don't like hemp or we don't like smoking. Um, They've gotta have a good reason. And they never articulated a good reason in the trial proceedings. Yeah, that was the big thing I remember about the the eyebrow threading case is what you said at the end was that the restrictions they were putting were just unreasonable. The people weren't arguing, oh, we don't want to have a regulation. They said the regulation you've put upon us isn't reasonable because none of it you want us to do actually applies to us. If, yeah. if, if the school yeah. actually had eyebrow threading courses, then yeah, we can understand that you'd want us to go through that. Sure. But it doesn't do that. Yeah, there's a similar case in the federal courts that I also love because it has great facts called St. Joseph's Abbey. And it was about a bunch of monks in Louisiana who, after Katrina, sort of trashed their land and they had all these fallen trees down, decided they would make simple wooden caskets and sell them. And the funeral industry in Louisiana didn't like that because they like selling $10,000 fancy caskets and got a law passed that required casket makers to have funeral director license, which, again, has to do with all these things like embalming bodies that have nothing to do with building a wooden box. And the monks, the good monks challenged it, and the Fifth Circuit uh, ruled in their favor. But that was a constitutional violation. The, the same can't just make up laws because they feel like it. The same wooden box that funeral homes will actually make for you out of pine. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask, because I had written down about the ruling where Livingston said the plaintiff's emergency motion for leave to amend the pleadings is granted. The amended pleading operates no surprise or prejudice to the defendants. Plaintiffs raise the rule of invalid invalidity because the statute's unconstitutionality in their amended petition. For the reasons stated above, the rule is invalid and cannot be applied to wild hempence insofar as the legislative ban violates the Texas Constitution, Article 11, subsection 19. And I wanted to ask, like, with, with what you were talking about with the Patel case, is that the Article 11, subsection yeah, 19 that's, the, that's going on? Yeah, that's that's the Patel basis. Um, and here I can be nerdy and even... Do we want to go full nerd and I'll read it to you? Yes, go full <laughs> nerd. That is allowed here. That is why we brought you All here. Right. <laughs> Just, um, I, I love doing the appellate nerdy stuff. Section 19, deprivation of life, liberty, property, etc. by due course of law. No citizen of this state shall be deprived of life, liberty, property, privileges, or immunities, or in any manner disenfranchised, except by the due course of the law of the land. And that's similar to what's in the federal constitution of the due process clause, um, which is in both the fifth and the 14th amendments. So that, and you think about that, like the due course of law, that sounds like a pretty vague phrase. Um, But I'd liken it to another 
phrase you may hear a lot these days, and that is the, the rule of law, that we have a democratic process and we have rules for making our laws. And when you violate those rules or when you do things just because you want to exercise power and don't have a rational reason for that, that's when it's vulnerable in the court system. Um, in other words, the state just can't make it up. And the legislative process itself kind of exposed that because normally, I mean, the way the legislative process is supposed to work is in those committee hearings, there's discussion about why or on the floor debates, why are they making changes to the law? And what's the goal? What's the legislative purpose? And with the smokable hemp language, that never happened. It was just inserted. And when legislators do that, they run a risk because then it's easier to argue there's no real reason for this. Well, there was, they they there didn't was a, articulate There was a it. term that I, I want to see if it applies to this that I heard come up in this session. It was a really big term, was germane. And it happened to deal with Moody's uh, bill where he said, it's not germane to the bill. It just, oh, you right. just can't throw whatever you want inside of it. Yeah, and it's and germane. I love germaneness because it's it's not a black and white concept. It's sort of a metaphysical one. And what's germane to the bill depends on how the bill is framed and looking at the bill as a whole. And germaneness can be the subject of what's called points of order on the House floor. Uh, and there's a whole art form to writing those and conceiving of them is tougher than writing. I, I'm, I don't mean to transition too far, but like, yeah, I was just curious, um, you know, for people who are, are celebrating now, looking forward, what what's the, the next step on the horizon? All right. So from here, the court will issue a formal order. And once she does that, the attorney general most likely will appeal it. And the attorney general, another fun thing that Ken Paxton guy likes to do is when he appeals an order, argue that that magically undoes the injunction. And we'll see if he pulls that again. They did pull that at the temporary injunction level and the Austin Court of Appeals didn't buy it. So there's some theoretical danger that the injunction can go away, but I think the odds are phenomenally slim that that would happen during the pendency of the appeal. And they could also appeal directly to the Texas Supreme Court. Um, they may or may not choose to do that. But regardless, appeals take a long time, you know, a year or more. So meanwhile, that injunction will be in place and people can go about their hemp business. And everybody should keep kind of pay attention to what's happening. Um, if y'all haven't seen it before to help fund this litigation, we set up the Texas Hemp Legal Defense Fund and we've got a website where people can contribute to help pay the cost. What's litigation. that? What? It is, you, you asked me that, let me triple check it before I say it and mess it up. <laughs> um, and you know, it's one thing that's frustrating about a government that doesn't want to play by the rules is it's really expensive to make them play by the rules. And that website is txhemppfund.com. If you also just Google Texas Hemp Legal Defense Fund, it'll pull up. Um, in fact, this is reminding me I need to update our website to talk about our glorious victory. I haven't even had a chance to do that yet. Um, and it, so it, the appeal could take well into 2022 if not into 2023 and between now and then we've got another election and we also will have another legislative session and 
that'll give us opportunities as a movement to keep moving the cannabis regulatory ball. We need to go into another quick break, another quick sponsor break. We'll be right back after that. This is the Lone Star Collective podcast, episode number two. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. We'll be right back right after this short break. Dream Blue Bonnet is a proud sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective. Blue Dream Blue Bonnet carries cannabis art, gifts, accessories, and more for you and your friends. Whether it be a pair of cannabis-themed leggings or a rolling tray, Blue Dream carries a variety of products. Visit BlueDreamBB.com to see their inventory and check back regularly as new items are updated. You can also find them online with Facebook and Instagram under the handle at BlueDreamBlueBonnet. You can visit them online again at BlueDreamBB.com. You know it would be cool if your business was mentioned on a podcast several times an episode. Well, you could have a slot right here on the Lone Star Collective just like the one I'm doing right now. Show your community that your business supports changes to social welfare regarding cannabis in Texas. Inform our audience that you are a supporter of independent journalism and the activism work we put in while informing them about your business. Let your customers know where you are located and what you offer the community. For more information on getting your business mentioned on Lone Star Collective, visit TexasCanaco.com. That's TXCanaco.com. And click the Contact tab. Oakland Cultivators is a sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective and Lone Star Collective Podcast. Oakland focuses on quality assurance with their hemp products while providing customer service to help you discover cannabinoids to meet your needs. Their product line includes hemp flower pre-rolls, CBG tinctures, edibles, Delta 8, and merch. For more information on their products, quality, or to shop online today, visit oakcliffcultivators.com or contact them at info at oakcliffcultivators.com. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast, distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, and much more, to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams and Austin Sam Hariri. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective podcast, episode two. I'm your host, Jesse Williams, with your co-host, Austin Sam Hurry, our guest hey this episode. Susan Hayes, how are you doing, Susan? Doing great. That's great to hear. Let's get back into the motion of this. I noticed uh, what I read to you earlier, it said, uh, for the reason stated above, the rule is invalid and cannot be applied to wild hemp pets. And I was wondering, is this, what I started to wonder about was, I know sometimes these cases be done just to apply to one group is that is that possibly could that be interpreted here or is this going to apply to everybody yeah this is just a letter ruling so it's not the formal document that will be the injunction 
and the text and form of that is to be determined, but I anticipate it'll be within a couple of weeks that that'll get done. Well, that's good to know. I just want to make sure everybody can be assured that it's not just wild hemp pets, because I know there were some other businesses involved in the case. I was kind of surprised that it was just just them being named. To limit it to one of the, I think we have a total of five plaintiffs in it. The, um, the other thing I, I wanted to ask you about was we were talking about the arguments the state has. Um, it seems that there was it was mentioned that said that uh, they wrote that they had taken no action to clarify the claims and filed no special exemptions. Mm-hmm. Does that does that kind of mean they kind of don't really have any further arguments they could bring forward at this point? No, you're confusing the difference between can and may. <laughs> they can argue anything. Whether it's effective was remains to be seen. So. They made that argument all along that we weren't, or sorry, and let me, I'll explain it back up and explain what special exceptions are. That in court proceedings, if someone files a suit against you and you don't get what they're talking about, you're supposed to file special exceptions and complain about that with some specificity. Like, I don't get what they're saying in paragraph 55 that what we did was bad. And that's because in general, pleading should be clear. You should know what you're accused of. And they argued that we didn't adequately connect the constitutional argument with this rule. This sort of back to how the language of the bill was so weird. The bill itself didn't do any banning. It just told the agencies, don't give people licenses to do this. So that rule was the language that flat out said, you may not process, manufacture, distribute, retail, sale, hemp for smoking. So that rule was where the sort of the effective language, if that makes sense. And that had to be knocked out, but we also had to knock out the basis for it. And that's what was in the statute. Okay. Yeah, that, that can that make, make sense. sense. And when you say the special exceptions, um, what it reminds me of is during the case when they had the uh, economist come in and they're like, well, what is this? What is what he talking about have to do with this rule? Please specify. I don't understand. Yeah. Well, and it's, it also was, it was puzzling to us because we're like, you know, well, it's kind of obvious they're connected because the rule is the effective language. Of course they're connected. And, you know, her letter references an amended petition. We did them in the petition way back in, I think, January before the trial. So since, and this is back to this weird two-tier um, or two tracks of litigation at the same time, they appealed the temporary injunction from September, and then we amended the petition. And the temporary injunction appeal only gets to look at what was filed back in September. The judges can't look at what's filed later because the record is um, locked down. So we had already, in effect, fixed the problem that the Austin Court of Appeals complained about. Um, and we just to do boots and suspender, suspender amended the petition again and tried to use, you know, as many magic words as we could come up with just in case. So what the judge found in the ruling is that that amended petition that we filed back in January did the job. Awesome. That's, that, yeah. At least that clarifies what's taking place here. You know, before you go, Susan, if you will, can you just give us a little brief background about yourself and the firm you represent oh yeah like how yeah. i tell us, tell us tell us a little about about yourself all right here's my story um i'm a country girl from central texas from brownwood kind of central west and my background as a lawyer is in appellate law i'm board certified in civil appeals and came up doing business litigation working at a big corporate law firm pay up my law school loans um and i got interested in cannabis Oh, I don't know, like eight years ago, something like that. I had moved back to Austin to pursue more lobbying than litigation because it's more fun. 
and I've worked around different lobby issues for many years now since I was in college at UT. And when I got back to Austin, I thought, you know, I, I want to do something super interesting. Like, what's the most interesting thing I could work on? Maybe a heavily regulated industry that's on the up and coming where there's lots of legislative work and rulemaking and probably some litigation. Weed lawyer, that's it. <laughs> I was watching what was happening around the country. Uh, and at the time, I was doing some legal work for a gay rights campaign that was being um, supported by a foundation in Colorado. And it turned out the program officer on it was this gay Republican guy, really cool dude, who had worked on the legalization campaign in Colorado. And so he and I started talking and he started introducing me around and then I land my first cannabis client. And from there, it picks up pretty quickly because, you know, as a le in the legal field, cannabis is so new that and it's cool to watch a lot of young lawyers get into it and very quickly become established and very successful because too many of the old lawyers were scared to get into it, particularly on the business side of things. You know, there's a lot of great old criminal defense lawyers around. And you guys may not know this, but, you know, the Normals Legal Defense Committee was started by some Texas lawyers way back in the day, Keith Stroop and a guy named Jerry Goldstein. And Goldstein is one of the most badass criminal defense lawyers in San Antonio or all the land, as the case may be. Um, and so it's... You know, it's, it is interesting. It's fun. I like science. Um, I really do spend hours and hours on PubMed looking at medical research about cannabis. And I also like to get my boots dirty. You know, I grew up in the country and around agriculture. So it's also fun to see how people's crops are growing and follow the development of the hemp markets, which is, you know, as I'm sure all the listeners are painfully aware, have been incredibly volatile, as often happens with any new industry or any new thing. Well, we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about all of this. Like you said, you 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 were like, I want to nerd out about this. And we we're like, yes, this is this is definitely right. the time and place for this. This is what we wanted. It gives everybody a nice, unique perspective and a legal perspective at that, an educated legal perspective on this, especially from an attorney that's working on the case directly. Well, you are most welcome. You know, my, my legal nerd knob goes up to 11, so I'm happy to crank that up anytime. So what is that website again? You have that txhempfund.com and you can also just google texas hemp legal defense fund um and i set this up with chelsea spencer who's another counsel on the case and sean hauser at vicente cedarberg to give us a mechanism to raise funds for some hemp litigation and keeping it and we did it not just with this litigation in mind but knowing there's other things that are going to come up mm -hmm. and it behooves the whole industry to support the effort because the whole industry will uh, benefit from it. And, you know, we, who knew that there was a huge manufacturer of hemp cigarettes in Dallas and that without what the company now known as wild hemp bets, um, the litigation would not have been possible. They put a lot of money into this case. Um, that cool cannabis economist experts you watch testify, you know, experts are super expensive. Lawyer time is super expensive. Um, and putting it all together took some effort. We also, uh, you know, I think y'all know Sarah Kerber, who's got 1937 Apothecary. Yes. Yes. Yeah, she's, uh, she's out here in Austin with me. I went to an event with her after Lucky Leaf here in Austin. Very good people. And I'm glad that yeah. they're, they're being involved yeah. in this. 
And the way I had it presented to me about this legal defense fund is that it's pretty much y'all are here for the underdog with that defense yeah. fund. Yeah, you know, there's going to be some poor schmo who becomes a test case for whatever issues the government wants to push, who may not be a big company that can afford to hire some lawyers. So we want to have some mechanism where the community can come together and back people like that up. Um, yeah, and Sarah, it was sort of funny how I met her originally. She opened her shop right as the 2019 session began. And I was working on the Hemplet bill and saw a news story that she was with pictures and she was selling flour. And I kind of panicked because I thought, oh my God, one of these conservatives is going to see this and freak out that this is happening right in River City. <laughs> I went to the shop to check it out and see, you know, is this person a really responsible business person or is she sketch like what's her story and she's totally on the up and up and kind of has a soccer mom vibe I think she kind of hates it when I say that so I was comfortable enough with her that we started taking I took Senator Perry's staff to go see it so they would understand what we're talking about and that they would get it and she's been a great ambassador for the industry at up at the Capitol. Well, I hope he'll she, I hope he'll visit her again and speak with her about some of the stuff because some of the stuff I heard during that committee hearing this last session I was just like wow you, you believe that and it was I believe the comment was well if they're coming up positive on a a like a drug test it must mean they've been intoxicated by this and that well that can't be legal and it's like that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Who who's told you that? Well, actually, you know, the drug test issue is a hard one because, and this happened during the 2019 session. One of the other lobbyists was telling me a it was like a family friend of hers who had a trucking company and they had a zero tolerance policy, and one of their best their best driver had bought some CBD because heard it would be good for him. It was working for him, and he had no idea there could be trace amounts of THC in it. Oh no. Yeah. And that, and, he, and they had to fire him, and they didn't want to fire him. But you know, they had this, this, very, you know, this old war on drugs policy. So there's going to be growing pains as the industry develops. And one reason we that story was, I think, one of the reasons we have really clear labeling laws in Texas that consumers need to know exactly what they're getting, whether it's broad spectrum or a complete isolate with no THC at all, because people can lose their jobs right now if they're not careful and if the industry isn't accurate with its labeling and certificates of analysis. Yeah, it sounds definitely like we have still much work to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and Susan, that's why I have the utmost respect because uh, somebody who's been at the Capitol and, and seen this, these processes play out uh, over several legislative sessions now, um, you know, I, I, I respect, you know, the work that I've personally seen you do at the Capitol, you know, at very, you know, very intense times and uh, seeing somebody like you there. Uh, that's why, uh, you know, I was you know, very felt very comfortable that your uh, perspective is is definitely the one we need to hear, because, um, you know, we saw you there and we, we saw how it played out and we're going to continue to see that. And I hope that we can have you on again soon. Uh, if any other event like this arises to talk about it. Absolutely. And I, one of the things I like most about doing legislative work is sort of finding unlikely allies and convincing my enemies that I'm right. <laughs> and that often takes a lot of work and getting to know members and Get you know, and being very honest with them 
because you know nobody believes this but there really is an honor among thieves at the capitol and if you're not straight up with somebody or you give them bad information you're done you know that office will never trust you again so right. trust is important and it is possible to build it with people who don't agree with you well i heard the phrase take people for who they say they are when you're at the yeah. capitol yep it is very exactly. much true exactly well, we thank you again for having having you show up and talk to us about this here at the Lone Star Collective. We're going to be wrapping this up now. This is episode number two. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. And your co-host here, Austin Zam Hariri, who's our executive director of Texas Cannabis Collective. Stay tuned. You can find us on Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Apple Music, I guess it's called now. I'm not really a an iTunes person anymore, but... You can always go and follow us, subscribe, find us at T-X-C-A-N-N-A-C-O, TexasCanico.com, and you can subscribe, and you'll get a notification in your email every time we put out an article, and we always put the podcast in an article at least the next day. We try to have that out within 24 hours, so you can get an email, you'll know when the episode's out, and then you can find the Texas Legal Hemp Defense Fund, you can Google that, TX Legal, Legal Fund. TXHempFund.com. TXHempFund.com. And you can help the underdog in the hemp industry. Don't want some poor schmo getting kicked off their farm. So we thank you again for coming and joining us, listening in. Have a great evening. Adios. All right. Thanks for having me. Wait to the world on my shoulders. I kept my head up. Now, baby, stand up. Because, girl, you. You want me. Hey. I want you, baby. Hey. My sugar boo.